This episode is brought to you by sunscreen. Y'all got to protect your beautiful faces from the summer sun. Welcome back, everybody, to My Fave Queer Chemist. I'm your host, Beck. And I'm Haroldo. And we have a really, really exciting summer pride plan for the show. We'll be welcoming some guest hosts over the summer who will conduct interviews with LGBTQ plus chemists in different specialities, all while raising funds for various LGBTQ plus organizations across the country. And part of the reason we're able to have these guest hosts on is because of our wonderful patron supporters who have given us the means to compensate them for their work. If you want to contribute to our Patreon for this bright summer and future events, you can find the link in our Twitter bio. And with that, here's our show. So hello, everybody. Today, we are very, very excited to introduce you all to an amazing chemist and educator. Can you please introduce yourself? Yeah, sure. Hi, everyone. My name is Nate. Uh, My pronouns are he and him. I am a high school science teacher in Los Angeles right now. I went to undergrad at Dartmouth College, where I worked with Dave Lamal in his lab. Uh, And then I was lucky enough to do a PhD at Stanford. Um, I worked in the Wender Group there, uh, working on total synthesis projects uh, in organic chemistry. Um, Excited to talk with y'all. Thanks for having me. Awesome. Great to have you here. Um, So first, we'll start off with, can you tell us about how you first got interested in science and chemistry specifically? So I'm allowed to be super candid, right? Yeah, of course. (laughs) (laughs) So uh, there's always this myth that like everyone loves science from the get-go, like when I was in elementary school and we had to do like science fair projects, I thought it was a drag. I don't know. I don't know if that makes me a bad scientist or whatever. I, I guess I just didn't like the forced science. I really, uh, in high school and then in college, had so many interests. Like I would study women and gender studies. I would study Spanish. I would study math. Chemistry was actually my like sixth or seventh major that I eventually declared in college after I went through a whole bunch of other ones that they didn't take. And I realized, because I realized that I had been taking chemistry classes behind the scenes just because I enjoyed it. And I was like, it took me a lot longer to realize like, oh, like I should just pursue what I actually enjoy. So my love for science came a little bit later than maybe other people's, but um, I think it came from a true place of just, you know, what classes I really enjoyed taking and the problems I liked solving and puzzling over and getting stumped by. So you, you tried out all of these, all of these different majors and then, and then this is the one that stuck and then you, you didn't have any doubts or any, any hesitations moving forward. I mean, of course I had doubts. Like I still, <laughs> I still have doubts. Uh, I would say practically I was already halfway through college and I needed to pick a major and, and practically, right. and you know, I, I really liked the classes that I had taken. Um, I liked a lot of the professors that I'd worked with in their classes. Um, it just seems like a really good fit. And especially like the problems I like to solve and, and the way my brain works, um, it worked well. And then I'll candidly admit, I'm, you're just going to get a lot of uh, answers that I probably shouldn't be giving, but I went to grad school partly because I was interested in chemistry, but partly because I didn't know what else I wanted to do with my life. And so I was That's, lucky enough to, yeah. you know, land in a good program, even despite that. It was, it was meant to be. Right. Yes, exactly. <laughs> in, in some ways. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Yeah. So you touch about this a little bit. So continuing your journey, you completed your undergraduate, like you mentioned at that North college, and then you moved to Stanford to do your PhD in organic chemistry. We love Orgo. So can you tell us about your experience, you know, in this institution, especially as an LGBTQ plus um, person? Yeah, so um, I graduated high school in 2001. I was in the panhandle of Florida, and the last two two years of high school 
were me just looking around in this very conservative part of the U.S. being like, how do I get out of here, right? And education was my way out. My parents, uh, my mom worked retail, my dad was in the military, so education was really my only way out, especially of the super conservative South. Um, so that was really my motivation to get to college. Uh, and then I get to college, I decide, okay, I'm going to be out my first year of college. And as far as I know, I was the only person out in my entire freshman class at Dartmouth, which was challenging because Dartmouth is in the middle of the woods. It's got like a lot of a, you know, kind of frat boy culture in the 80s. It used to be a lot more conservative than it uh, was when I went there or is now. And so it took me a while to kind of like find myself as a queer person, uh, to make some queer friends. So I did a little of that and also just kind of dug into all of my different classes it wasn't until I started taking a lot of LGBT classes through the Women and Gender Studies Department at Dartmouth uh, by a guy named Michael Bronsky. He's a queer theorist. Um, he would drive up from Boston a couple times a week through the snow and all, and everything to teach us. And we were this like lovely gaggle of queer kids who were just so desperate for that in the middle of the woods. And so that's where I kind of found a lot of my you know queer friends to start with, even some of my best friends to this day. And then kind of the one weird other note about Dartmouth is my last week there, they give out these awards and I ended up winning the award for like best male all around, I guess when the awards were still gendered. Um, and I was- Wait, what? Yeah, what and I was mean? definitely like, not like, I guess who, who knows how they decide these things, but like almost always in the past, this award for like best female all around or best male all around had been given to like, like this person who was like a student leader and an athlete and all of these other things. And I was just this like, like little queer kid trying his best or whatever. So like, that was kind of, um, I mentioned that because it, it felt a little bit like validation that I could be like this queer person who was also a scientist who also had all these other interests. Um, and so that made me think like, okay, like there's something that I'm doing here that feels right. And then, yeah, I went to Stanford and that was actually the first time I ever met queer scientists. I didn't even know that that was possible. There were, you know, being in the Bay Area, I think attracts LGBT people. And I would say in my class of like 50, you know, first year grad students in chemistry, there were like five or six of us that were queer, at least that we knew of. So that to me going from zero to that in the sciences was was huge. And so I was like, oh, okay, like people who kind of understand me on multiple levels, um, which is super lovely. But then my, I was listening to, so I am friends with Tesha Kuhn and I was listening to his podcast the other day and he was like, grad school is not that long. And I was like, Teshik, I'm going to fight you because for a lot of people, like grad school is long and it can be tough. And for me, it was six brutal years and it was super tough. Um, it's a combination of doing a whole bunch of experiments that don't work and spending all your time doing that. So that impacts your self-worth. Uh, in your spare time going on lots of dates that also don't work, <laughs> that impacts your self-worth, right? Why do, I don't know. why do you attack me like that? I'm <laughs> no, like sorry. That, no. <laughs> I, I just decided to read you. Um, and so your self-worth takes a huge, huge hit, right? And so, you know, especially in lab when things weren't going as well, and I felt like I didn't have a queer community that was outside of trying to like date people. I just felt like I needed some other outlet or some other thing. So that's when me and a couple of friends started this organization called GradQ at Stanford because there were undergrad LGBT organizations, but there wasn't a grad student one. So we wanted to make one just to kind of like connect across departments, get out of our little silos and 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 connect. And I think it's still going strong. Yeah, that's amazing. That that yeah. I mean, yeah, that that leads us in, into our next question about so kind of how did this organization get started? You mentioned that it kind of came out of a real need to have and find this community at Stanford. And you mentioned that it, it's still going. Uh, how do you think that this work or like what did this work look like 10 plus years ago? 
um, a lot of us are younger and we're in grad school and we're like doing a lot of this work in 2022. Um, how, how is this work when you were in grad school and how do you think it's changed like since you have been out, if that makes sense? Yeah, I mean, I have to naively imagine that things are a little bit easier now than 10 years ago, but I, it could not be. Um, I can only speak from my experience and I can say that when I was in grad school, it felt a lot like the, you know, like I don't play sports, but like I hear when people play sports, there are a lot of times when coaches say like, whoever you are, that's outside of this. Like when you leave all that off the field and when you come to the field, you're like this, you know, this athlete, athlete robot that does whatever I want, right? That's kind of how I felt in grad school a little bit. Like your job is to come here and mix these chemicals and fail and have me yell at you because you failed. I don't know, whatever. And so I felt like I couldn't be my true and full authentic self. And so I felt like I needed that outlet. And my husband will tell you that a common theme with me is that when I get frustrated that something isn't happening or something isn't the way that it should be, I just get annoyed and try to do it myself. <laughs> so a couple of friends and I just decided like, okay, we uh, want this queer outlet that doesn't seem to exist. And we wanted to get out of our department and meet people from other departments. Because when you get siloed in a department, you start thinking that all the things that happen in that department are normal and that that's how life should be. <laughs> and then you talk to people from like the English department or the history department or the math department. And you're like, oh, things are fundamentally different in different places. And so you kind of start rebuilding your reality and you just connect with people who kind of understand you on that fundamental level where you don't have to explain you know, why your queerness is impacting certain situations or why, you know, a certain comment at a group meeting will be, will hit you in a way that it hits someone else differently. And so, yeah, we just kind of blindly decided, you know, we just want to start this organic, no pun intended, I guess, this like just natural group um, where we would just like have social events and just kind of see what developed out of it. I'll admit that after I left grad school, I needed to kind of put some distance between myself and, and that uh, place. So I didn't know if it kept going on. But when I visited last time, I saw some flyers for God Q and I was like, okay, this feels like a lovely uh, thing that has continued. And I have no clue what form it's in right now, but um, it made me feel like, okay, something, something right happened there. Yeah, that's good. That's so that's sweet. Good. Yeah. yeah. And then, sure, um, yeah. oh, go ahead. Oh, no, I'm, I'm sure that it's had um, a lasting impact and mm -hmm. just, yeah, that that work was really needed at the time, I'm sure. Yeah. And then the other thing that really, really helped me, especially my last two years of grad school. So Stanford, um, their, their vice provost for graduate education, Patty Gumport at the time, decided that there needed to be a lot more support for grad students who came from diverse backgrounds, broadly defined. Um, and so they made this fellowship, this two-year fellowship called BEAR, Diversifying Academia Recruiting Excellence, with the idea that, you know, you can't just say we need to expand the pipeline and get more people from different backgrounds to go into academia, because academia is hard, it's brutal, it just will put you through the ringer if it can, and that filters out a lot of people along the way unless there's support. Um, so the purpose of this two-year fellowship was to identify people who were interested in going the academic route potentially and give them a lot of not only financial support in terms of two-year fellowship but also classes on you know what does it mean to teach in r1 versus you know an undergrad that doesn't have a grad school component to it and all these different places what does it mean to teach at a community college and then as part of that we actually went and toured and visited different schools at different levels in the bay area just to get a sense of of what it was like and that was also lovely because again there were 
you know, a couple people from my department, but there were people from history and English and math and just getting to make those connections was something I didn't know that I needed. So if you're in grad school right now, like any way that you can find those connections to different departments just to, you know, see what they're going through, the problems they're solving, the things that they're thinking about was just so valuable to me. And it helped me get out of my tiny little bubble to kind of think bigger or think differently than I had been before. And I think that fellowship is still going on. I was part of the first cohort, but they're on their 12th or 13th cohort. And something I really appreciated about them was they defined diversity pretty broadly. So in my class, there was, you know, there are people of different genders, sexual orientations, ethnicities, races, but also, you know, a grad student who uh, was in the military and now three kids. And that's a totally different background than a lot of grad students who maybe just come directly out of college um, and don't have those life experiences. And so I hope that more institutions have things like that um, so that they're not just like giving lip service to diversity, education, equity, inclusion, all of those things, but actually like putting the resources in there to, to help support people. Yeah, definitely. I think um, we've talked here in the show how important peer support is. And obviously when you're in a grad program, you get support from your you know chemistry peers, but having support from other types of you know groups and communities is like very, very helpful. And like you said, again, schools you know talk the talk of you know let's increase diversity and inclusion and all that but actually seeing them do it it's it's really rewarding and like you said it has a a lot of benefits that you know will help you throughout your career eventually yeah and having people that you can talk to that are not in your department because whenever I would like go to coffee with people in the chemistry department inevitably we would just start talking about about our experiments and our research (laughs) and so you can't do that with other people and so it forces you to be like oh wait I used to know how to talk about other things too and (laughs) kind of like and and just hear what they're going through too right Mm -hmm. yeah definitely I I like that that's that's true (laughs) um so yeah so going along with your career and I I love I love this question because before I go into the question you know this this the other first question that we asked you know how do you get interested in science and chemistry a lot a lot a lot of people including myself say my high school chemistry teacher inspire me to be in chemistry. And so you are a, a chemistry, a high school chemistry teacher for the past 10 years in LA, like you said, at the Harvard Westlake School. And so can you please tell us about, you know, your journey, how you, you know, be, how you became a teacher? And did you always wanted to be, you know, to be a teacher? Did you get support your grad school program to be a teacher? And, and yeah, how did, how did this happen, basically? <laughs> yeah, so when my siblings and I used to like, you know, sometimes people play like, cops and robbers or like whatever they play right like when my siblings and I were younger we would play like school uh like over the summer my dad would leave workbooks and he's like you can do whatever you want during the day but you have to finish these workbook pages first or whatever so we would take turns like who gets to be the teacher and who gets to be the student and whatever um so maybe we were indoctrinated I don't know but throughout grad school and undergrad I I did a lot of tutoring I did a lot of TAing and teaching and, and it was something that I really really enjoyed actually through the last like year, year and a half of grad school, should I admit this? I would sneak over to the education school and work with one of their teams on some chemistry education research, like help them code things because they knew the education side, but not the chemistry side. So like they needed a chemist to help code things. Um, So that kind of got me more into like the theory and the, the methodology behind teaching. And I was getting to the end of my grad school career, or I had hoped because there's no firm deadline, right? And I didn't know what to do. The economy had collapsed a couple years before. And one of my best friends from college, who was also queer, had told me that he had taught at a private high school for a couple of years. And I didn't even know that was a thing, right? Like I went to a public school in the South. I didn't know any of this because I always... For public schools, you have to have teaching credentials, but for private high schools, you don't. They just want someone who, you know, is smart, works hard, and that can be kind of like molded into what they want and can teach well. So I 
started, I, I saw no path out of grad school for myself. Um, and I was stubborn and didn't master out like I probably should have. And so I was like getting towards the end. And I just decided to work with some, some headhunter firms that kind of help place people into private high school teaching positions. So Cal West, Carney Sando, these other organizations that are free or super cheap for the person who's looking for a job. And the way that they get paid is when you get placed at a school, like if school wants to hire you, the school pays a commission to the, the headhunting firm. So that was super nice. Um, and I was kind of doing that in the background and my advisor didn't quite know. Um, <laughs> so my advisor and I had to have a couple of conversations towards the end uh, where I was like, hey, this is what I need to do. And I need you to graduate me by a certain time because I need to start teaching in August. Like, can you sign this paper so that you're good with that? And I think he was a little relieved because he, you know, I wasn't going to be the top student who ended up going to industry. I wasn't going to be the top student who went to Harvard or whatever to start a professorship there. So I think he was like, oh, thank goodness I don't have to figure out what to do with him or how to get him a job. Not the most awkward conversation I had to have with him. So uh when I applied for that DARE fellowship, because it was the first cohort and they hadn't quite figured everything out, they wanted one letter of rec and it had to be from your advisor. And the letter of rec had to say like, he's a great student or whatever, but also it had to have at least one paragraph that was in full about like, how do you fit the diversity requirements? Um, I wasn't explicitly out to my advisor at that point. Um, I wasn't not out. We just like had never had that conversation because it would have been weird. So I had to pre-write the letter for him and I had to go into his office and say, okay, I've written this rec letter for me from you and I need you to, you can do whatever you want, but this paragraph where it talks about how totally gay I am, like you have to keep that in there so that I can get this fellowship and get paid so that you don't have to pay me. So such a bizarre conversation. That sounds so funny. <laughs> it is, but it's this weird way where like, you know, you just get so desperate for these fellowships that you're like, I just have to sacrifice you know, whatever this conversation is going to do, like if you're going to treat me differently because of my queerness or because you know about it. And thankfully he's super lovely in that respect and did not uh, treat me differently, but it was not the conversation he was expecting to have. So if anyone has had to have those conversations with their advisors, I feel you. Uh, and it's a need why we need more queer advisors so that we don't have to have those conversations that are as, as devastating. But back to getting my high school teaching job. So yeah, like I, I went to a bunch of these interviews with these different private high schools and I was lucky enough to get picked up by the school down here in Los Angeles. In my interviews, I was very open that I was queer and that I planned to be open as a queer teacher. And if that wasn't something that interested them, then I wasn't interested in applying just because some of my friends had taught at private high schools in the South where they had to stay closeted or they had taught at religious private high schools where they had to stay closeted. Um, I just didn't want that. And so my coded way of saying that was, I will only teach at schools where I can bring my now husband, then boyfriend to work events. And so if that wasn't possible, then I wasn't interested and it put some limitations on me, but it was something that I believed in enough that I was willing to kind of roll the dice and take that chance uh, to find a school about that. But they were looking for uh, an advisor for our school's GSA. So Gender and Sexuality Awareness Club. And, you know, it ended up working out well. I think one of the other things that I remember in Teshik's interview was that he says that, you know, you're never done coming out, right? Like there's always, you have to keep deciding, you know, when you meet new people and with teaching every year, it's a brand new crop of kids. And so you have to decide like, okay, they probably have Googled me. So they would find my wedding announcement, but just in case they haven't, like, do I use male pronouns? Do I refer to my husband? Like, because I'll admit, like, I don't know if it's internalized homophobia or or what it is, but 
there's always the fear, especially early on in the school year, that these 15-year-olds will hear me talk about my husband and decide to check out. And I won't even get the chance to teach them the subject that I love so much and get them interested in it. And I know that if I can get my my claws into them, like I will, you know, uh, do some good things with them in terms of chemistry. And so it is a struggle even 10 or 11 years into teaching like that I still have of like, on the one hand, like I know that there are so many kids of all genders and sexualities, including cis straight kids who like desperately need all types of role models, especially our queer kids. And then there's the part of me that's, you know, I'm almost 40, but I'm still afraid. Like, what if they don't like me? What if they decide to switch teachers the first time I mentioned my husband? Thankfully that largely hasn't been an issue. My, uh, so my husband and I got married in 2015. We got engaged in 2013. So that was like my third year of teaching maybe. And the students that year threw me and my husband a surprise engagement party <laughs> at school, which just like- That's so a, cute. Yeah, <laughs> over a hundred like kids, 15, 16 year olds, like, and of course, like in true fashion, I love them dearly. Like they, like they brought snacks, but the snacks was like a bag of Doritos, like a bunch <laughs> of cookies. Like, so I ate them all obviously, but like, um, they, they know I like Legos. And so they 3D printed me a Lego and they all signed it. Like just this thing that like, I almost burst into tears at the moment because I, you know, like the queer little 15 year old in me still who can't even believe he's, you know, married and, you know, all of that couldn't believe that these kids would support me in that way. Cause that was definitely not my high school experience. And so that doesn't mean that all the problems are solved and everything is fixed, but it, feels like things are at least progressing a little bit. I mean, with the caveat that I'm in the bubble of LA. So that is one part of it, but it, it makes me feel more empowered to like be queer and a chemist to them simultaneously to show that like both of those things are possible. I was able to do that a lot recently because CNE news had their like recent issue where every single, you know, person in the magazine was LGBTQ plus. And so on Twitter, I asked if people could send me some copies of the issue to share with my students. And they did. And let me tell you, like every period when I would be like, hey, look, we, we got in the mail, like some kids would go over and like start looking through it. And I was like, golly, to have had that at that age just mm-hmm. would have. Yeah, I can't, I can't imagine having a, a queer teacher. That would have been like such a good role model to have growing up. And of course, I you know I had good role models later in college, but I mean, high school is such a good you know, moment in your life when you're like, you know, building yourself and, and deciding a lot of things. And that's that's amazing. That's honestly really, really good to hear that that you have the experience for your students. Yeah. And so it makes me it's tough, right? Because like on one hand, I'm like, oh, this is I'm I'm being the person that I wish I'd had as a kid. Right. Which is a lot of what powers me is like I forget who said that, but basically like as a teacher, what do you wish you had had as a kid? be that for these current kids. But then I think of other parts of the country, including where I grew up, who do not have that. And all of the recent political pushes and the laws that are just like taking us back decades and decades and decades and criminalizing, you know, gender affirming care and, you know, basically making it harder and possible for queer kids to be out, be open, be themselves. And so it just kind of makes it feel like that divide is even more of like what I can give to my kids in LA versus like what so many other kids need. And that keeps me up at night a lot, trying to figure out what to do about that. But that doesn't mean I shouldn't keep doing what I'm doing. Like it's a, it's a collective effort. It's just really tough. I think one of the tough parts about being a high school teacher is that so many teachers are identified as women, right? And so to be a male teacher, there's already the like, 
stranger danger aspect of things, if that makes sense, of like people don't trust a male teacher because like they're going to, you know, do yeah, untoward yeah. things with, with, with minors, right? So you always have to be super aware of that. Always keep your door open. Don't be alone with, with students, all the like normal things that you would do. Um, as a queer teacher, it's extra hard because like now it's kids of all genders that there could be those concerns about. And so you have to be extra careful on the up and up because as we know, even one accusation or even one thing that looks untoward and like your career's over. What does not help is all of the recent political posturing and language around like grooming that like queer people, queer adults are grooming children, especially teachers are grooming children and basically equating any queer adults and especially queer teachers is like with pedophiles, um, which is incredibly dangerous. <laughs> And it just makes the stakes that much higher. It makes things that much uh, tougher because even in LA, you have one conservative parent who finds out that you're queer and they don't want their kid in your class anymore. Or they, you know, one other thing that I'm super lucky to get to do at my job is I yearly give a talk to all the sophomores about gender and sexuality, like that I wish I desperately had. Not chemistry talk, but just like, here's what gender means. Here's what sexual orientation means. Here's how they're different. Like, here's how we all, you know, can identify. And all it takes is showing one statistic in that talk that someone doesn't agree with, showing that more recent generations of Americans are more likely to identify as LGBTQ+, that upsets the wrong person, and it could be your career on the line. I mean, thankfully, I'm incredibly supported by my administration and by the other teachers and by my bosses, but I've had to have some tough conversations to affirm that like, no, damn it, this is, this is important. Like these are kids' lives that are on the line. And it's one of the reasons why I'm so grateful that I get to teach full time. I know that I'm probably a disappointment to a lot of people that I went to grad school with that I didn't go into academia and I didn't you know end up at Harvard or some important school where I can do research and teaching. But I think where it feels like I fit the best is like impacting minds at that age and getting to like, do a lot because you know teaching especially at that age is like 10 to 20 percent content uh communication and 80 to 90 percent just like being patient and like listening and like being there for the kids and holding firm boundaries but loving them for who they are which i think we need a lot more of i i think that what you're doing is just as important as like pipeline research so i don't know yeah. what the other people think but that's what i think I'm just earlier yeah. in the pipeline, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But no, I think, I think like that, that is one of the reasons why I love doing this podcast. And this is one of the reasons why Geraldo and I have really made sure that we've tried to have people from very diverse, different career backgrounds and education backgrounds and all this stuff on the show is because you do have a place in the chemistry field. You have a very important place because you're, you're teaching this next generation of scientists and of students and on top of that, once you, once you add the kind of queer layer to that, mm -hmm. I mean, just like, even just you bringing the perspective of what it's like to be a teacher right now during everything that's been happening politics wise around anti-trans and anti-LGBTQ um, legislation that's going around all, all across the country, like that is very important perspectives and stories to hear that Unfortunately, I think we just like can turn a blind eye to a lot in the chemistry mm -hmm. field. A lot of people do. And it's something that really frustrates me, but it's just like having people who like you are a part of this field, you are like, you do have an important role to play, even if yeah. people don't value or respect what you do as much as other, you know, career, different careers, but 
this is important and, and people mm-hmm. do need to hear these stories and people yep. do need to kind of think about what, what it is like to be a teacher right now. Um, and so I, I just really want to thank you for sharing all of that with us and, and for being a really necessary person and, mm-hmm. and story to have on, on the podcast. Yeah, I appreciate that. And I think that I hope your listeners, especially if they're in grad school, will hear what you're saying uh, and they'll hear my story and other people's stories. And maybe for some of them, that means that they don't go like pressure themselves into academia, right? Maybe mm-hmm. they consider teaching at the high school level or, or they, they consider something other than academia or industry, right? Because mm-hmm. like when I was in grad school, that felt like those are your two options. If you don't like it, it doesn't matter because those are your two options, right? Yeah. Um, and so like the idea that there are other options that are just as valid, or even if people don't value them as much in that specific realm, other people will value them and you can feel worthwhile putting that into the universe and and feeling that that can be your purpose and impact. Yeah, definitely, definitely. So a few years ago, um, you were the coordinator of diversity, equity and and inclusion at Harvard Westlake. So what did this, position entail and what was kind of your experience working with DEI initiatives, especially at the high school level? We hear a lot about, you know, DEI initiatives at the college and university and even some industry level um, projects and what that looks like. But, you know, what does that look like at a high school? Yeah. So um, work needed to be done, right? (laughs) Like I think that pretty every, pretty much every institution from top down got to a point within the past decade that they said like, okay, we can't really rest on our laurels anymore. Like we can't just like think that academic excellence or whatever you want to, whatever metric you want to use is enough anymore. Like we need to be including and supporting and restructuring a whole bunch of what we do. And so we need to figure out what are we doing wrong? What could we be doing better? And so there wasn't really a DEI office at our school until um, my boss, Janine Jones, kind of took it on. Um, and I volunteered to kind of like work with her while still teaching chemistry. And so it was a situation of like, there's so much to do. We can't do all of it, but like, let's move the ball forward as much as we can. Um, one of my first projects was, you know, we have kids who, and, and adults who identify as non-binary or who don't feel comfortable using the restrooms that, um, are kind of like lots of stalls in the same restroom. Um, and so can we have, can we just convert all of our single stall restrooms to all gender restrooms? Like super easy. And actually it's California law now that that has to happen at, at businesses and schools. And so I got to do things like that. I got to just like hear from kids from all different backgrounds about what their experiences were like, make them feel heard, but also say, okay, now that you've shared that with me, it is now on me and the people in my office to kind of like do things to make your life better um, to make things better for students, but also to support the faculty and staff more. And so uh, I was able to be a part of that office for three years until, you know, I stepped back so that other people could have a turn. Um, I think I was really grateful for that opportunity to, you know, step out of being a chemist, step out of being a teacher a little bit and kind of like flex this other muscle to strengthen that um, and to support my community. I will candidly say that one thing that frustrated me that I was good at or not good at, but that people will listen. Like, so my boss, Janine is a black woman, straight. Um, I'm a white dude, queer. If I would say that things are homophobic, people would be like, well, of course you'd say that. If she would think that they say that things are racist, they would say like, well, of course you would say that. But if I said that things are racist and she said that things are homophobic, then people would listen. Right. And so we kind of had to do this reverse tag team 
And a lot of my colleagues who are white would listen to me without the lived experience of like people of different racial and ethnic backgrounds, sometimes sooner than they would listen to the people who had that lived experience. And so sometimes I would just have to say like, I would have to be the white person just saying like, this is how it is. And this is what we need to think about or change to get other white people to get on board, right? Um, and everyone's at different places. And so as long as people are you know, doing the work to move forward, that's to me what's important. But it, I will admit that it kind of frustrated me that like some of my strongest power was just my whiteness. And when I would point that out to some of my colleagues, they would kind of need to take a step back and be like, oh crap, we are listening to you just because you look more like us than other people might. And so I also think that it's important for you know, white people, for straight people, for men to be in this work because it shouldn't rest on people of color, queer people, non-male people to shoulder the burden of all of this, right? To do all of that extra labor. I mean, we hear in academia all the time, the people who aren't straight white dudes get sent all of the, the students to mentor. They get sent to all the committees. They get sent to all the like meetings and the projects that they have to do on top of all their other work. And so that's part of the reason why it also felt important to me as a white person to, to do that work. Because I, I know what it feels like to be on the the bad side of, you know, being a queer person. And so like, it's super easy to be like, okay, well, other people from other backgrounds must feel a lot like that as well. And so like, I shouldn't just make things better for myself. I should do what I can to, to help as many different types of people as I can. Yeah, that's really nice. And, and that just, you know, encapsulates the, the answer to the question, you know, whenever we have topic um, conversations about race and all this, you know, why, what can white people do? Or what can other white other people do? And so this really is just, you know, use your voice because you have, you have a voice that, you know, a lot of people listen to. So if you use that voice, you could help a lot of people in different ways. And so that's just like a perfect example. So thank you for sharing that, that experience with us and with everyone that listens to this as well. Yeah. One of my thoughts that I always have in my head is like, what good is my white privilege for unless I use it to like mm -hmm. subvert the system and to like make things better for other people? And like, what good is my male privilege for if not to do right. a lot of things like that? Which is why I hope that a lot of people who might not be immediately impacted by what's going on politically right now for, because it impacts them in, mm -hmm. in lots of ways too, or even if it doesn't directly impact them because it impacts a lot of people they love and care about. Yeah, definitely. So yeah, switching gears a little bit, this is really, really fun that we found. Uh, so you are the founder of Queer Crosswords, and that's Crosswords with Q for the people that want to look that up. Branding, yes. <laughs> um, so it's, that's a really fun initiative. So can you please tell us about the idea behind Queer Crosswords and then, you know, your experience doing this work? For sure. So um, my side passion is Crosswords, which is of the past five or 10 years ago. Candidly, even in grad school, I like, I eventually got a PhD from Stanford, right? Like, but I'm so dumb that even when I was in grad school, I was like, oh, I'm not smart enough to do crosswords to like solve them or to write them or to whatever. And then it finally took some of my friends to be like, dude, just like try. And then I was like, oh, I actually like this and I can do it. Right. So a lot of it is just believing in yourself. Um, so I got into crosswords and I solved a lot of them and I started building them and I super loved them. But when I would solve crosswords, I found that if I wanted to like solve them quickly or effortlessly or whatever, I had to learn how to pretend to be straight <laughs> to, to, to solve. Cause there would be clues like husband, spouse, four letters. And I'm like, well, my husband's name is Ben. That's three letters. That doesn't fit. And they're like, Oh, the answer is wife. Like, 
what the, like that's not right and like just like a lot of clues that just assumed the solver to be like straight white cis male like all of this kind of stuff and again on brand um i got frustrated and didn't see anything that represented like me and my experiences in crime there were no rupaul references there were no you know all of these other references you know paris is burning all of these different things that i really thought were great or cared about or, or informed my experiences and so i just you know reached out to a bunch of crossword constructors that I knew and I was like who's queer who wants to write a crossword let's put all these crosswords together you can write about any topic clue things in any way like just like let your queer flag fly whatever that flag may be and we wanted it to be accessible and we wanted it to do good and so following on the model of a couple other crossword packs that we had seen we decided like okay we're going to put all these crosswords together and if people donated five or ten dollars to an LGBT charity of their choice and just showed us the receipt from that we would send them the the pack of puzzles for free. And it ended up being such a success. That first pack raised, I think, something like $30,000 for different LGBT charities um, that we made a sequel with even more puzzles from even more queer constructors and people of all genders and sexualities. And just kind of some of the puzzles are super queer. Some of them just have like a hint of queerness, but it allowed them to see themselves in the field in a way that they hadn't before. And I think it has shifted the the dynamic in cross world a little bit so dorky to say that but like you know in the new york times or in wall street journal or some of these like mainstream outlets now you'll see things that are clued a little bit more queerly or you'll see things that are clued you know husband spouse often okay sure that's wife but it's not always right um and so just like a little bit more of an eye to that is something that i'm actually really proud of and between the two packets of queer crosswords that we've made i think we've now raised over sixty thousand dollars for lgbt charities um, Amazing. I, That's yeah, really, and so really cool. yeah. it's just, you know, a way that I could meld multiple of my passions and get annoyed that I didn't see myself in something that I loved so much and decide like, well, screw it. I'm going to make myself be in that space. Yeah. So if anyone wants to, to look into it, it's, it's queercrosswords.com, crosswords spelled with a Q. You can also email us at queercrosswords at gmail.com, um, spelled either way, because I got both email addresses. And, uh, and, and honestly, like during the pandemic, like we just decided like, you know, even if you don't donate, but you just like need that release, like if you just need like puzzles where you see yourself, we were sending them out for free. So any of you who are grad students who like don't even see the light at the end of the tunnel, if you just need some like crossword puzzles where you would know a lot more of the answers, um, you can go for it. Because as a teacher and as a crossword writer, I promise this makes sense, like there are tests or there are crossword puzzles where you would try them and you think, oh, I'm dumb, I can't do this. But it's only because all of the answers are not from your cultural experience, right? And so if you make a crossword that's just as difficult, quote unquote, in terms of the words in there or the clues, but you put the clues from your cultural experience, then you can solve it super fast and then you think you're smart, right? So it's not that you're dumb or smart, it's like, what does the crossword or what does, this, does the test, does it relate to your cultural experiences? Because, you know, the New York Times or the Wall Street Journal or all of these other crosswords, how many times if you've solved these puzzles, do they ask you questions about like, you know, baseball players from 150 years ago or like golf terms or like historical things of white people? I don't know. And if that's not your cultural experience, like who knows? Um, if you're a queer person, person of color, like a woman or someone who's non-male, like a lot of times your experiences don't show up there. And so part of my idea is like when we write tests in chemistry, um, when we write crosswords, like, can we think of ways to write questions or clue answers 
that are more inclusive of people. Even simply like using they, them pronouns in a word problem on a chemistry test and kids notice, right? <laughs> that I'm talking about a singular person using they, them pronouns and they're like, okay, I just still don't know how to do dilution calculations, but like that problem made me want to try to figure it out because I saw myself in it, right? I think a lot of scientists think, oh, science is objective. So how could I possibly be part of DEI? How could I possibly be part of change? When like one, science is not always objective. Like look at facial recognition technology that only works on white people because that's who it was tested on. Look at the fact that there weren't period trackers in Androids and iPhones until way too late because most of the people developing apps were men or didn't have periods. And so when people don't see themselves, like how can they feel included, right? And like, if, unless you have all kinds of different people in the room, how can the best problems be solved? If that makes sense. It definitely makes sense, yeah. And that's amazing, yeah. Yeah, that, that is so cool. I, I, wanna, I wanna try it out. My partner and I- tend to do the New York Times minis because I like have too bad of ADHD normally to like focus on something that long enough to do that like a big crossword and they're kind of scary but the minis I've like gotten really good at so I'm now I'm like oh my god y'all need to have like queer crossword minis and like uh, you just so, do so if you much look at the New York it. Times app I may or may not have uh put together a bunch of people to make some queer crossword minis that you can buy the pack of them for like three bucks. Why, really? Like um, I don't get any of the money. I think it goes to New York Times. <laughs> oh my but, gosh. Um, so yeah, search through it. their like little mini packs on there. Like there's, there's a set of those uh, for you. Um, that is amazing. That is great news. Yeah. I'm so excited. Um, that's very <laughs> cool. So uh, one of our last questions, sure. again, that we ask in every interview, who is your chemistry or science role model and why? And you are allowed to have more than one. Sure. So. I put a lot of thought into this and it was a lot harder than I thought it was going to be. So I think that there are two very different answers. So the first one is my undergrad chemistry advisor, David Lamal um, at Dartmouth, who was going emeritus kind of like as I was there um, and could have just kind of like cashed in, retired, like whatever, but was still willing to take on kids like me and be patient when I didn't know anything. And just like, even when I was a week out from my, you know, senior thesis being due and I didn't know what a senior thesis was supposed to look like. So what I turned into him ended up just being like part of it. And I had none of the experimental done because I didn't know you were supposed to do that. Like he gently was like, but firmly was like, okay, here's what you need to do to get it together. But like was super supportive of me in a way that if I had had a really bad advisor at that moment, it would have totally changed the trajectory of my career. And he's such just a dear. I love him. And then my other science role model, uh, may sound weird, was my dear friend Courtney, uh, one of my lab mates in grad school, who was in grad school for like four or five years, was doing great work, was not really appreciated by our advisor, and made the decision to take her master's degree and go do something that she really was passionate about. And she's been incredibly successful ever since, um, doing a lot of work for startups, and then now she's made her own company that um, helps startups kind of like do a lot of the stuff behind the scenes that a lot of the like more technical like CEOs don't know how to do. And to be, I feel like mastering out was always my worst fear in grad school, right? Because of how much people were going to judge me or how much people, or that I wouldn't be successful or that I wouldn't have a life or a career or whatever. And so I'm so incredibly proud of her that she was brave enough to do that in such a difficult situation when she was so close, right? Um, and she could have just like tried to stick it out, but she just at one point said enough is enough and made the decision that was the best for her and has been incredibly successful charting her own path. And it is, she's someone who I still admire tremendously for just how smart she is and how 
Um, she could run circles around me scientifically, how brave she is. And I wish that I had an ounce of that bravery in a lot of ways, even now versus what she experienced, you know, over a decade ago. Um, so sometimes the people that you admire the most or who are your heroes can literally be in the next pot over. That is such a, that is such a sweet story. And yeah. I hope that she listens to this and then she gets to hear the, the shout out that you give to her. That is, I might accidentally yeah. send it to her. Yes. Because <laughs> <laughs> honestly, like, I don't know, like you can tell me, like, is there still such a stigma of taking a master's degree and not finishing the PhD? Yeah. Um, and anything that I can do to erase that stigma or just to say like who cares what other people think like you need to do for yourself what you need to do because like the mental health toll of just like pushing through and if you're not in a great situation it's not worth it like I will candidly admit that I finished my PhD and for five years afterwards I had on my google calendar every Thursday a repeating thing that said no group meeting ever again (laughs) (laughs) right and so (laughs) And finally, after five years, I was like, okay, I don't think I need that anymore. Like, I think I finally, finally, finally got to the point where like, I don't mm-hmm. need that validation. Um, and so yeah. that's not telling people like master out mm-hmm. just all over the place. Like you do what's best for you, right. but to the extent that you can find what feels good for you and what will bring you peace and joy and fulfillment and just like mental health and well-being. Um, just know that there's so many other options out there and there's so many people who are going to be super supportive. And honestly, like when she mastered out, like there were so many people who pulled her aside and they were like, I'm so jealous of you. Like, how do I, you know? Mm -hmm. And there were so, there were people later on that would be like, Hey, like, do you know this, this woman who did this? Like, can you connect me with her? Just because there's this whole like background scene of, of people like realizing like maybe grad school or, you know, the futures ahead aren't for them. Mm -hmm. Um, so not to be the naysayer of all the other fantastic guests that you've had on your podcast. <laughs> um, but I just, I want to give another, you know, alternative aspect in, in a lot of different ways, just in case it's something that people need to hear. Yeah, that's really nice. Yeah. Because I'm like, I think most people think, you know, when people master always, oh, you know, they can't, they can't take it or they can't do it. But that's not, that's not real. You know, there can be a lot of reasons why people just master out, you know, it could be, you know, it's not for them. They have a different plan for the career. They have family issues. I don't know. There could be a lot of reasons. And yeah. so it, it's, it's a good thing to, you know, normalize this and it's okay if you want to do it. Yeah. Totally. And, and it's hard to get past the sunk cost of it, especially if you're three, four or five years in. Right. Um, but you just got to do what's the best for you. And sometimes mm-hmm. it's worth taking the step back and saying like, okay, like let's look at the bigger picture, especially with everything else going on. Like, mm-hmm. is this really what I want to do or, is there, could I imagine my life a different way? And most people in grad school are still young enough that they have, you know, so many lives and careers and, and possibilities ahead of them. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. yeah. So thank you for that. And so our last question, where can people follow you on social media if they want to connect with you? Yeah, sure. So um, I'm on Twitter primarily at Nate, 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 N-A-Y-T-N-A-Y-T-N-A-Y-T. I don't have an Instagram, although my dog does. And so if you like French Bulldogs, you can follow my dog on Instagram. It's at aerodynamic, E-E-R-O underscore dynamic. Oh Um, my God, I'm going to follow right now. I am going to follow too. (laughs) My husband named him after the architect Eero Saarinen, um, who did the St. Louis Arch, I believe, among other things. Um, He is, I don't know if you can see him. Is he back there? I don't know if you can see him on the couch. He's like, oh yeah, I can see the little ears. Yeah, (laughs) I might be able to hear him. Sorry if he's been snoring in the background this entire time. Uh, He doesn't have much of a snout. So um, 
Oh, French are so cute. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and then, yeah, if uh, if you would be interested in queer crosswords, either to, through donating to a charity which could desperately need it, uh, Trevor Project, ACLU, mm -hmm. all of these other um, trans women of color collective, uh, there's so many uh, charities that desperately need all the backing that they can get, especially going into the next couple of years. Mm -hmm. um, if you can donate, great. I know that a lot of people can't and that's okay. And so if you'd love to get the both puzzle packs of Queer Crosswords from us, you can just um, email us at queercrosswords at gmail.com and I will personally send them to you for free um, just so that you can have that moment of joy. Awesome. Yeah. Thank you so much for being on the show for this yeah. incredible episode, for sharing all of your incredible stories with us. We really, really do appreciate it. Yeah, thank yeah. y'all for having me. And if anyone's listening to this and they want to know more about going into high school teaching, um, I'm happy to to answer Twitter DMs or anything like that. So reach out. Perfect. Thank you, thank so, you much. so much. Cheers. Thank y'all for having me. Thank you so much for your time. Yeah, yeah of course. course. Have a good Have night. A yeah. Bye. Bye. Take care. Bye. Our hearts continue to be with all of those in Ukraine during this horrific war. We hope for safety and peace for all Ukrainians. Remember to follow the nomination form on our Twitter. If you're interested in being interviewed for the show, you can follow us at MFQC pod. Take care, everybody, and stay safe. We'll see you soon. Bye. Adios.